0: Welcome to episode 68 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And I'm now 50. Yay! (laughs) I had a really good week last week. Thank you for all the birthday wishes I got from everyone out in the, uh, you know, Facebook world,
1: etc. So you know what this means. No. It means between the two of us, we now have... 102 years of book experience. Wow. <laughs>
0: we are smarter. I love it. It's what I love about getting older, actually. Mm-hmm. I do yeah. feel a slight bit of wisdom. <laughs> yes.
1: Hard earned. In yes. Cases, uh, that's yes, right. I agree. That's right. Yes.
0: So before we get started with our regular segments, we wanted to talk about the fact that we have picked a read-along, our read-along number 10. Yes, yeah, exciting. Which is exciting. Yeah. Would you like to to do the honors, Chris? We'll be reading True Grit by, I don't remember the author's name. (laughs) That's the other thing that happens when you get wisdom. You
1: lose your mind. Um, By Charles Portis. Charles Portis, yes. Yeah. So 2018 was the 50-year anniversary of that book. And 2019 is the 50th anniversary of the movie version of True Grit starring John Wayne, and I realized there was a more recent version made as well. Right, that like was the more Coen Brothers. Yeah. right? oh, I don't I know, I don't, re- I don't know that yeah. much about I it. Think... I know it was a, mo- a more true adaptation, I believe. Oh, okay. So, we've been wanting to read a western. We asked people on Goodreads and other places, and Truger did come up a couple times. Yeah, and it's one that I've been wanting to read because it's mainly about a fourteen-year-old girl. Right. And, you know, you see images of True Grit, the movie, and it's all about John Wayne, which is what I grew up being aware of. I didn't even know that the movie was based on a book until more recent years. Right. And I think
0: the more recent version really does run with the perspective of the 14-year-old girl who really is the star. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to read it. I did see the more recent version oh, of the did? movie when it came oh, out. Cool. I have not seen the John Wayne version, and they're going to be showing it. In select theaters across the country in May, May I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so we're gonna try to to get to a showing of it as well and just to remind people we have a group on Goodreads that's just called Book Cougars it's something I'm really proud of we have a lot of members of it now it's really fun To see people hop in and talk about books because obviously Chris and I like to do that a lot. So we have one um, up there for the 10th read-along where we kind of crowdsourced with people ideas that they had. And we decided to do True Grit. So if anyone starts reading it or has read it and you want to hop in there and chat about it, please do.
1: Yes, please do. Or if you're going to be talking about something that could be a spoiler, just put that at the beginning. So people can choose to stop reading or not. Yeah, I realize it's an older book, but still. Yeah. It's always a new book the first time you're reading it, no matter how old it is.
0: Or if your brain's old,
1: sometimes it's a new book the second time you read it. It just depends. True story. <laughs> so what are you currently reading, Chris? Well, I'm talking about an old book. I'm currently reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Oh, wow. Who was the emperor of Rome. I think he assumed the position in the year... 160. It was a little while ago, a while ago, yeah. Um, but I've been wanting, this is one of those books that's always kind of been on the back of my mind, or anytime I come across it, I think, oh, I really want to read that. So I'm reading it now. It was one of the last books I bought in 2018. I had gone to the bookstore to buy the next book club book, and I was searching for something that would be kind of inspirational, motivational to read in the new year, and I, I wanted to read something that was a classic and had staying power and this is what I chose (laughs) and I'm really liking it and it's fascinating to me a lot of people consider this the oldest surviving diary Mm. in a lot of ways it's notes to himself about his life and about how to be the person he wants to be and a lot of things just so resonate with me and I feel like wow Marcus is writing this for me oh that's great yeah two thousand years later right So like this one little blurb, he says, do external things distract you? Then make time for yourself to learn something worthwhile. Stop letting yourself be pulled in all directions. But make sure you guard against the other kind of confusion. People who labor all their lives but have no purpose to direct every thought and impulse toward are wasting their time, even when hard at work. Well, and I'm just and this like, this is
0: before social media,
1: this is before social media, <laughs> before Stephen Covey. Um, <laughs> and, and I like this too, another one, he says, because most of what we say and do is not essential. If you can eliminate it, you'll have more time and more tranquility. Ask yourself at every moment, is this necessary? Mm. I'm like, oh my God, this totally resonates with my keyword of the year Which I'm kind of going back and forth on But you know how people pick a a word To kind of help focus their year My my first word choice Is going to be priorities Mm. To help me remember my priorities So I don't get distracted by every shiny object That comes along Which is always happening to me And then I was thinking it would be something else But this is a perfect book For me to be reading right now That's Meditations by Marcus Aurelius That's
0: great Good for you (laughs) I'm currently reading The Eating Instinct, which is a book I've talked about several times already because I went to see Virginia Soulsmith at RJ's. Um, so the full title is The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. I'm really enjoying it. We're going to have Virginia on in February. And, um, you know, it's a real look at the way that different cultures in our country, in particular, handle food. And she looks from the Clean eating, I'm using air quotes, that got steam from Michael Pollan and Alice Waters and how that affects people in places where they're more impoverished. Mm -hmm. And then she also just looks at how we establish our eating patterns as young kids and things like that. There's much more about raising children in here than I thought because the basis for this book was I mean, she had a background in writing about food for different magazines as a freelance writer but then she had a daughter who had a severe medical trauma and was on a feeding tube for a long time and then became started to have trauma around eating Mm -hmm. really always did from the beginning of time because she was never never able to establish good eating patterns yeah so as a mother you know I'm still a mother even though I'm not feeding my kids very often anymore I find it really interesting because it makes me think back about how I did choose to feed my kids and how I was fed in my own family and things yeah. like that. So I'm really looking forward to talking with her about it. She obviously knows how to research. You know, she's gone out and talked to a lot of people. So mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see what you think about it when I hand this book off,
1: yeah, pass the baton. To it.
0: Yeah. So again, The Eating Instinct by Virginia Soul Smith. I'm also reading, and I'm using air quotes when I say that. <laughs> you know, sometimes you go to a bookstore and you shop and something just kind of, Stays with you and you have deep regret that you didn't buy it. So I think two months ago I was at Breakwater Books right here in Guilford and I saw this crossword puzzle book. Oh, neat. The New York Times Best of the Week Monday Crosswords. 50 in very big writing, easy puzzles. <laughs> I get the New York Times Sunday paper and so I have the online edition and I do the 5 by 5 crossword puzzle every night. Mm-hmm. It's the last thing I do before I go to bed. I, I call it my... Alzheimer's defense plan (laughs) because it's supposed to be good for your brain to do stuff like that and it's a really fun little quick short puzzle that I try to do in under two minutes nice so when I saw this I thought oh this will be really fun and it's what I bought myself for my birthday and it has a really pretty cover and the other thing I like about it is it's spiral bound so you can open it up all the way and fold it over in half and it's when nice I, size. yeah, when I started it last night, I got my black wing pencil out that you had gotten for me nice. and I see the draw of a black wing pencil. Now. They're nice, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. They have a very cool flat eraser and it just feels nice on the page when you're using it. Totally. So.
1: And you know that eraser is adjustable.
0: I didn't can, know that. You can
1: pull it out and pull the eraser up a little bit more and then stick oh. the metal part back in, which I think that is some engineering ingenuity. Yeah. I'll have to play around with that later.
0: I should say that this crossword puzzle is edited by Will Shorts.
1: Mm -hmm. The master. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So. Nice. Well, I'm also looking again at the dot journaling book, which I've mentioned on a past episode, dot journaling, a practical guide, how to start and keep the planner to do list and diary that actually, that'll actually help you get your life together. It's by Rachel Wilkerson Miller. So I'm currently using my moleskin planner, which is my basic planner. I also got a panda planner late last year. I've been playing around with that style, but I'm always drawn to the whole dot journaling or bullet journaling is another word for it, vibe and culture. So I got this out again for a little bit of motivation.
0: So it's not actually the journal itself. It's just explaining to you how to do that. Yeah, it's explaining
1: what a dot journal is, what bullet journaling is. It gives you some sample pages of different types of, say, weekly trackers, monthly calendar spreads, and then just some ideas for different spreads, you know, to track your health and fitness, your reading, your food, exercise, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's really cool. And... Are you reading more? No. Nope. Okay. One more quick thing I am attempting to read is a book in German. It's a series of books called Die Dry, mm. with three exclamation points. It's about three girls who solve mysteries. Oh, how fun. Yeah. So this is Vorsicht Strandhai. I think that's how you pronounce it. So it's pretty much like, caution, beach shark. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> We'll see how that goes. I'm reading like maybe a page a week because, you know, I'm just getting back Because it's in a different language. I'm <laughs> just thinking that way. So,
0: That's great. Yeah. I tried several years ago to learn Italian, mm-hmm. and it just didn't go well for me because I think you really do have to devote yourself to it. And um, I know my daughter, Rachel, has, in, in college, she did a minor in Spanish, so she's now at has worked where she's had to speak Spanish and very fluent but how she really learned a w- long time ago was doing homestays in Spanish speaking countries where they watched a lot of telenovelas that's cool you yeah. know uh-huh. but I don't know if you can set subtitles on our programming on our TVs to German I know you can do French and Spanish but
1: oh interesting yeah cause that
0: could be a cool way for you to also just hear I think so much of it is if you just can hear it a little bit yeah it helps, you know
1: yeah, there, well, there are a lot of online resources that are kind of like mini-shows to help you oh. learn German or whatever language yeah. you want. So there's one, oh my gosh, what is it called? Something Berlin. So it's this group, it's two teams of three people each who are all German language learners. And they're going to different cities and they have to do different things. Oh, fun. And so the language progressively gets a little bit more intense. But they speak slower and I know, like, Deutsche Welle, which is a, a news outlet, their website has a whole section on learning German, okay. and there's slow-language newscasts, I think, in almost every language. Oh, fun. So you can hear yeah. the news, watch the news, that but they speak slower. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, German, Italian, French, whatever, when it's a native speaker, you're just going a mile a yeah. minute, and you're yeah. like, well, okay, I understood one word. Maybe you could get it as an audio book too. That would be so
0: cool. That would be And cool. you could do the opposite of what we typically do and slow it really slow. Right. Yeah. Because then you could be reading and listening, which would be fun. Mm-hmm.
1: Totally. There's so you. many options out there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So 2019, that's one of my big goals is to re up my German game. Yeah. In, in terms of reading, especially because yeah. I feel like I'm okay speaking and listening once i'm warmed up yeah um, but with reading there are just there's so many books that don't get translated yet yeah or they take forever to get translated especially like mysteries and mm-hmm. there's a lot of i think great german crime fiction so i'd love to be able to just jump in and, and start reading them as they're being published instead of waiting yeah. years good for you yeah so what did you just read Well, I went to a different country. (laughs) I was recently in Australia for my last read. It is The Lost Man by Jane Harper. And the subtitle is Three Brothers, One Death, No Answers, dot, dot, dot. Mm. This one comes out February 5th. It comes out here in the United States. It's already been out in Australia and some other countries, I believe. This is the third novel from Jane Harper. And it is... Set in the Australian outback around this family where three brothers, one death. And it is so extreme. The landscape is so extreme mm. out there. There are stories about able bodied young people dying within six hours when they don't have water. Wow. You know, the temperatures. I mean, my cousin in Australia just posted on Facebook yesterday that they're experiencing oh, like a week of temps above 104 degrees. Fahrenheit, like it's, and she's in a, like Sydney, you know, like yeah. she's not in the outback, which is even more extreme. So those extreme conditions make for such a fascinating setting, and the landscape itself is such a character in this book because there are so many myths and stories about this one homesteader and how he died. Like this, there's a lonely headstone in the middle of nowhere. Mm with this man and and all these stories about how he died and and is he haunting the area and there's some history incorporated into it around that story and then just also things that are casually mentioned like it wasn't until the 1930s that the white homesteaders who were moving into the area were able to keep their babies alive because it was so extreme that most babies did not survive most white babies anyway Mm -hmm. So anyway, Three Brothers, a lot of, it's like a family drama with a crime. Mm. Because somebody dies, and so they're trying to figure out what happened. So a lot of family secrets come out. Just a lot of family traditions come out, which Mm. are quite often secrets. Right. (laughs) Um, They're, and I loved all, I, I, I I shouldn't say I loved the characters. I really liked all the characters. I thought they were all very distinct and different. Mm-hmm. and I highly recommend it. Another great novel by Jane Harper. Again, it's her third book. Yeah, she's three for three, isn't she's she? She's three for three, totally, yeah.
0: Wow, that's exciting. It good. totally is,
1: yeah. And so that's coming up from Flatiron Books, February 5th. Check her out. And in the meantime, you can read her first novel, which was The Dry, which was really good. Yeah. I really like that. And then Force of Nature was her second.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I just read Clock Dance by Ann Tyler. I really enjoyed it. There's something about reading in Ann Tyler where it's almost like a little reading vacation, Mm -hmm. which is hard to explain in a certain way. But she just weaves a good tale. And this is about a character named Willa who's (laughs) older. You know, she's raised her two boys. There's been some tragedy in her life. She has I, I love the way Ann Tyler handles kind of the idea of building this woman's life because she starts each section is a ten year leap and the lion's share of it is spent in twenty seventeen, so it's in current day. But she ends up getting a phone call from the ex girlfriend of her son's neighbor. Okay, yes, it's a little confusing. <laughs> who has the ex-girlfriend's daughter that she's taking care of because the girlfriend got hurt. Mm. And when the neighbor went to look how people have phone numbers hanging up over their telephone, at least back in the day when we all did that, and this woman's number was there as her boyfriend's mom. So it said mom, and it was the phone number. So she picks up the phone, calls Willa, and says, you know, there's been an emergency. Can you come take care of? Her daughter, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to the neighbor, you know, this is not the daughter's grandmother. So she ends up going to Baltimore, which is a, a city that Ann Tyler writes a lot about because she lives in Baltimore and has, I think, for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And the neighborhood is also kind of a character in the book because of all the neighbors that live there. And so I really enjoyed it. I mean, you, you just kind of get lost in the characters. There's always Seemingly in her books, kind of a, a, a woman trying to find her way. You know, we, mm-hmm. I think particularly mothers a lot in her books, you know, you raise your family, you're a wife, and then, then What's,
1: what? Yeah, then what, right, yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's what this book is a little bit about, her finding her way again, a way for her to be needed and necessary and interested in life. I really loved it and now I did talk to someone who said you know I finished it and I put it away and then I couldn't remember what it was about mm-hmm. and her books can kind of be like that because it's mm-hmm. like you're visiting with friends and then you put the book away and mm-hmm. then you know it's not one that you necessarily record in the history books right. You know, yeah, she did win the Pulitzer for her book Breathing Lessons which I want to say was in 2007 or something like that mm-hmm. so I want to Pull that one out. I can't remember if I read it, <laughs> but um, I do always enjoy her books, and I hadn't read an Ann Tyler in years. So, again, Clock Dance by Ann yes. Tyler.
1: Well, I did finish Girls on the Line uh, by Amy K. Runyon, which was a World War One historical fiction about a woman who was an operator who goes over. Really enjoyed it. I think, is that her debut? I think it might be a debut. I could be wrong about that. You know, it might be. And because it was, I think I first heard about it on Amazon. It It's one of, the, it was one of the free books to read for the month. And I think I started it. And then I thought, you know, I think this might be a good audiobook. Okay. Is what I did. Because I had a credit on Audible. Right. So, right. yeah. And speaking of which, I've been having a hard time sleeping. So, a couple months ago, and you know how Audible has, started doing these free, you get like three free shorts that you can pick mm-hmm. each month. So one of them I had downloaded a while ago was um, Emma by Jane Austen mm-hmm. with Emma Thompson as the narrator. Oh, how fun. And, and different actors doing mm-hmm. different roles and they have sound effects. So lots of teacups clinking and everything <laughs> in the background. So I, I started listening to that with my eight minute timer uh-huh. to help me fall asleep because I just love Emma thompson's voice and all the other british voices and i know the story so it's kind of just calming and puts me to sleep nice yeah it's funny how certain voices help you sleep yeah we forgive you people if you use our podcast to help you sleep (laughs) i used to do that with this runner (laughs) he did a running podcast and i don't remember his name it might have been simon he lived along the canal and he would run along the canal mm-hmm. and talk about the geese he was seeing and the barges and the people. And I loved his voice and I would fall asleep with him. And he mentioned it on his podcast one time that somebody wrote into him saying, I fall asleep with you. And he's like, I don't know whether to be offended or flattered. You know? <laughs> it's confusing to me. But... <laughs> That's great.
0: Yeah. I love it. <laughs> A biblio adventure together we
1: did finally it was that one place that we've been talking about for i guess we can almost say years yes we have this for years yeah for yeah. years yeah um, but we finally made it up to west hartford together yes, to the noah webster
0: house yes and for any of you who don't know noah webster is the webster behind webster dictionaries right mm-hmm. Yep. and it's a tiny little house right on what is now Main Street in West Hartford Mm -hmm. that I drive by all the time because it's very close, literally around the corner from a gentleman caller who lives there. So
1: Yeah, so they have his original house, right, that faces the street. And then in the back, they have this big addition where they have a museum, you know, a small museum with some exhibit information about his life. And off to one side, there's a video room where you can see a short video of him to start your tour. Right. So we were there on a Monday, was it? And so they didn't have a tour, a docent available to give us a tour. But they did have iPads that you could take and do a tour of the house with that, which is really cool. Yeah. So like it had, you know, each room. So you can just hit the room and hear about that room and some of the objects that were in it.
0: Yeah, I think the objects were the the coolest part for me, and including they had these huge fireplaces that Mm. you could literally walk into that they did all their cooking in. And one of the videos we watched was um, a woman making a pie and then putting it in this big cast iron Dutch oven and burying it in the coals and baking it. And you could almost smell the apple pie as you mm -hmm. watch the video. Yeah, and
1: she talked about making baked beans overnight, letting them sit. Yeah, so that was really cool. really neat. And then one of the coolest things, too, we were both, it was the first time we'd ever seen it, which, you know, we've both been to a lot of historic homes, but it was a candle holder. So it was a cylinder made out of some kind of metal with a little flap door that opened up people put the candles in, but then they'd hang it from the ceiling to keep the mice from eating the candles, right? And I'm just like, "Wow, like this is the first time I've ever seen this." Right. And object. think about how important candles were to yeah. people,
0: right? And I never thought of the fact that mice would want to eat them. You know.
1: Could I think, you imagine I think... <laughs> like you have like 20 pages to go on your book and you know you have a little candle stub left to make it? And then you get to your bedroom and some damn mouse ate it. Exactly. Wouldn't you be pissed?
0: I would. I'd be so <laughs> pissed. I think the only problem with that candle holder for me was I don't think I could reach it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'd have to make sure there was something to stand on or a tall person around to get yes. the candle for me when night fell. But yeah. um, it was really cool. It was really well done. They also had some very cute videos of kids reenacting oh. different things from that time yeah, period. Yeah, eating different foods. Right. That was funny. Yeah.
1: they were one of the girls. Kept referring to some, some of the foods as, like, poison.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> and it was, like, um a vegetable that right. was not poison. Or, but, yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: pickled watermelon yeah. and things like yeah. that. So that was good. Yeah. It was a nice tour. I enjoyed it. And, yeah. and I had no idea that Webster was so instrumental in the early years of the establishment of America as a country culturally. Because that was one of his things as a teacher. He wanted to have uniformity for how words were pronounced and how words were spelled Right. that were also different from England because America is trying to establish itself as this own entity and how important it was to have consistency, to have standards, to have cookie cutters of certain things, which now we all rail against. You know, we all want to be individuals and unique and right. do you, you, yeah Right.
0: Yeah, but, and, the, but there is, I mean, it did also help you understand why people always say the English language is so complex, mm-hmm. right? Because our spellings don't often follow rules that make sense. Right,
1: and it was just one guy who decided.
0: Right, right. exactly. <laughs> Apparently, he crowdsourced some of them because there, yeah. the there was one um, thing that showed, like, a list of the way the words had been spelled and how he wanted to spell them. And some of these changes were accepted and some were not. Right, yeah. So that was crowdsourced somehow. Yeah. You know.
1: Some of them were really good decisions to change and others not so much. Right. Yeah. But it it was fascinating. And you could really just see how important it was to have those standards to make people feel like they were part of something bigger. Right. Back in the day when the country was trying to establish itself as a joint entity. Yeah. Because they didn't know. I mean, remember, like they even said in that little video, the colonies didn't know if they were each going to be their own country or if they were going to be one country. And so when you think about something like language and how important language is to hold people together, interesting visit.
0: Yeah. And so he was known for, he created this thing called a blue back speller Mm -hmm. because it had a blue cover. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the and West Hartford has an area of the downtown called Blueback Square. So they really embrace the history of Noah Webster yeah. in West Hartford. They really do. Cool.
1: And they taught some of the statistics about that Blueback Speller. It was the it sold over a hundred thousand, a hundred million copies. Yeah, yeah. Before it fell out of fashion, yeah. so to say, and, and then the dictionary and subsequent books came along right that's pretty major for back then yeah and it was used in schools and everything yeah so that's one reason for that amount of sales i suppose but still yeah
0: no it was a great day i'm so glad that we went and then afterward we went to
1: emily took me to the west hartford public library which was
0: beautiful and it's called the noah webster library you know there's a great statue of him in the front which i didn't show you which we should have done but We'll do that next time. Oh, no, in the time. front of the
1: library? Yeah, because
0: we came we were... in the back, Oh, okay. remember?
1: Oh, right, with those cool yeah. stairs. Yeah. And then when
0: we walked out to go to dinner, I just don't think I pointed it out to you because okay. you walk right past it. So anyway. Okay. Something to do when we go back next time. Ups-
1: yeah, it was a great library to work yeah. in. Emily works up there pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, but very, just a great atmosphere, laid out really nicely. Yeah. Big front. Well, a big, you know, main area, really tall ceilings, but then on the sides, nice little cozy areas to study and work. Yeah, we got a lot done.
0: I'm always very productive there. And I, you know, as you guys know, who listen to this podcast frequently, we are both huge lovers of libraries. So I did want to say that another adventure, I'm using air quotes, that I went on, was to listen to episode 664 of This American Life. Mm -hmm which is titled Room of Requirement, which is a Harry Potter-ism. And it's all about libraries. And I highly recommend it. It was such a lovely episode of, you know, why people use libraries, what surprisingly ways that people use libraries. And I love This American Life, and I haven't listened to it in a long time and Mm -hmm. was thrilled to come across this episode. Libraries play a huge role in my life. I mean, I work there a lot. Recently, Jim came down for the weekend and, you know, he is as rabid of a reader as you and I are. He doesn't get as much time to read, but he is. And he got here and he was beside himself because he's reading a page turner and left it at home well, yes and, and he he, lives, that's an hour drive, yeah he lives so. an hour from here yeah. so he contemplated <laughs> i saw the look in his eye and i said let me just get online and see if it's available in any of our libraries around here because we have several mm-hmm. sure enough it was so we raced out to the library to get him a copy so so now he has a copy yeah. here yes. and at home which is perfect <laughs> yes yeah, so i recommend if you're in a long distance <laughs> relationship with readers
1: Get multiple copies of the book you're
0: reading (laughs) (laughs) so you don't face that. From the library. I tell you,
1: the library solves so many problems. Like the other day, well, we talked about it, like checking out books that you know you're not going to have time to read, but you check them out. And it's like retail therapy without spending money. Yeah. To be able to check those books. It's just something so comforting about being able to do that.
0: Yeah. And sometimes you read about a book and you just want to touch it and look at it and read about the author. And I mean, I do that all the time. Read around in the book. Yeah, 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 totally. I also do a lot of recommending of books to our libraries mm-hmm. and I'm always thrilled when they do bring in one of the books that I've recommended because they have a new system with our library where if you're recommending an ebook or an audio book you can check a box where they will automatically put you on the list for the book. Check it out to you, you yeah. know, if they bring it in. Well the other day I went to recommend a book and to discover that I have reached my recommendation limit. There's a limit. <laughs> I didn't know that till today. Yeah, actually it was not today, oh. it was last week. But yeah, so I'm heartbroken and I don't know if I can unrequest or if this is it for me until... Oh,
1: so you, the
0: number of requests, yeah.
1: not the number of suggestions. No, the, I have buy.
0: recommended, I have over-recommended, oh, I cannot wow. recommend any more
1: wow. books. They, they must think you're an put, agent or I
0: something, right? They put a kibosh, <laughs> like that Emily Fine, no, wow. she's no more recommendations from her.
1: Well, I have so. the email address of the woman who does interlibrary loan, who has actually bought a couple books that I had asked for, hmm. so we'll, we'll contact her directly. Maybe <laughs> we can have a weekly coffee clutch with her. Yeah, really.
0: I'll make a deal with that. We can check. We can lower my recommendation list number if you buy some of the books on my list. <laughs> Oh, my. Oh, that's
1: fascinating. Yeah. Wow. I
0: was shocked. It, it happened when Jim was with me. I was trying to recommend a book, and I got this huge alert, and I showed it to him, and he just started laughing. <laughs> he thought it was hilarious that I have exceeded my <laughs> recommendations to the local public library. <laughs>
1: that's fabulous. Oh, it was very oh, funny. So,
0: so did you, I had one more adventure. Did you have any other adventures?
1: I, no, I did not. Noah Webster was my main Biblio squeeze yeah. this time around. <laughs> Not a bad one. Well, I hopped a
0: train down to New York City for my birthday weekend and saw Choir Boy on Broadway, which is a new play written by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who is the writer behind the movie Moonlight, mm-hmm. which I loved, which I think was out last year. Pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so. It's a coming-of-age story as well as a coming-out story. It's about a group of five young black men who are at a prep school. And it centers around the fact that they have a choir. It's an extracurricular activity that they do. And the gentleman who's granted the lead of the choir is the main character, and he's also somewhat closeted gay, but not really closeted. Mm -hmm. He's very open in who he is, but yet recognizes from past experience that it's not a safe thing. So I loved the music. It was all acapella. They used a lot of stomping of their feet and hitting their chest and clapping their hands to kind of make a beat, which I loved. I thought the story was great. Some of the people I went with thought it was a little slow. Mm-hmm. There were several pregnant pauses, but I felt like the point of that was to make you sit with the things that he was saying mm-hmm. or showing us. Um, I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. It's showing through the end of February. I hope it gets a longer run than that. It's you know uh, yeah. only a two month run. I have to say that I follow Cecile Richards, who you know the ex president of Planned Parenthood who wrote the book Make Trouble, on Instagram, and she
1: went the next day, oh. and I was like, oh my god, I almost <laughs> got a sighting of Cecile Richards. You posted the playbill on Facebook, and one of my friends from Chicago, Julie commented on it that her daughter went to school with one of the guys mm. in the show and it's his Broadway debut it's the guy wow. in, all the way on the far right okay on, on that playbill
0: I thought all of their performances were great mm-hmm. I thought they all did a wonderful job so I really enjoyed it highly recommend upcoming
1: yeah. johns what you got
0: well, what we've got what up? you got, girl. Um, one nineteen, Danny Shapiro, R.J. Julia Madison, in conversation with Roxanne Cody about her new book *Inheritance*, cool. which is about a DNA test that she had done to discover that her father, that she thought was her father, was not her father. Her father, mm-hmm. who's now passed away, so she can't talk to him about it. Um, and then on uh, January twenty eighth, we're gonna go see Michael Chabon at Yale University. Yeah, I'm
1: looking forward to that. Yeah, and mm-hmm.
0: speaking of Yale University. I love now how you can say that you follow people, you know, like on social media, Mm -hmm. instead of calling it stalking, (laughs) because (laughs) I definitely stalk Roxane Gay, but, you know, I can say that I follow
1: her. I saw the tweet that you're talking about. Yes. She is
0: now teaching a class at Yale for the semester, which, for those of you who have read her books or know anything about her, she was a student at Yale back in the day. Didn't go well for her. Not... The Yale part, I think, just the fact that where her she was in her a mess life, at yeah, that point, right? and she left. So here she is now, as a very accomplished writer, back at Yale teaching a class. So yeah,
1: she's teaching a class on trauma writing, yeah. which sounds fascinating. And one of the books that they're reading, she on this tweet, she lists the books that they're reading and some of the essays. And right. "Bastard Out of Carolina" is one of them, which is one of my really good reads. That I I've love had. that book by yeah. Dorothy
0: Allison. Yeah. yeah, that's a great book. So I plan to stalk Roxanne Gay at Yale. Yeah, that's my plan for okay. this winter. We'll, we'll find it. <laughs> we'll be in the hall. <laughs> I mean, I was almost like, I'm sure I could just audit the class. No one would notice me, you know. <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> don't call the Don't call the police. But she's not there all the time. She still travels back and forth. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure how that's. It might be like on a mind.
1: one day seminar or yeah. one day a week seminar yeah. maybe or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll be going to Chicago later this week, um, going for a long weekend to visit with my mom, but we are going to try to make it to the Newberry Library, which is one of my favorite places in Chicago. It's known um, as a research library, and they have a lot of great, everything from like medieval manuscripts to a lot of genealogy stuff for Chicago and the Midwest, uh, Native American collections. Their new exhibit is focusing on Moby Dick. Hmm. They're doing their first Moby Dick marathon reading, which that's at least the third that I know of. I think I've mentioned it before because there's the one at the uh, New Bedford Whaling Museum, which was the one that I think might have been the first one. They've been doing it for quite a long time. And then the Melville House up in Western Mass, they do one as well.
0: We tried to go. We, we had signed up to be readers, remember, at the whaling Museum, yeah. and then we snowed got signed out. out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, Nathaniel Philbrick is actually going to be there to kick things off. He's going to have a, a talk about Moby Dick and the importance of Moby Dick, because he did write a book called Why Read Moby Dick, which is about reading American classics. Okay. And he's also known as writing about the sea. He's written some really great books. Right. like One of my absolute favorite nonfiction titles is his In the Heart of the Sea, mm-hmm. brilliant book. So I won't be going for that. I think Mom and I are just going to head up on Friday to see the exhibit, but looking forward to that very nice. much. Because I love Moby Dick. Yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. And Kathleen Rooney, who wrote, um, what's the name of that book, The Walking um. Book? I'll look it up. She recently read Moby Dick for the first time. Kind of straight through. I don't know how long it took her. Several days. And she loved it. To the point where she tweeted that we should replace the Bible with Moby Dick. Right. I saw that. I, you know, uh, yeah. It's really funny because it made me think of a scene from Fried Green Tomatoes. That book and, and the movie adaptation where there's a scene, and this is a spoiler alert, where the preacher is in court testifying he puts his hand on the bible to swear in and he doesn't necessarily tell the truth and then afterwards there's a little conversation whispered between two people saying i can't believe the pastor did that and somebody says well what the judge didn't know was that that was a copy of moby dick that he swore on so (laughs) (laughs) that's great moby dick and the bible are sometimes uh on equal footing. Right. Or, they have or interchangeable together. Or, or something. Yeah. History together. That's a good way of putting it.
0: Kathleen Rooney's book is Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk. Yeah. That's, I saw her tweets about that. It was yeah. great. I wonder if she's reading it because of the exhibit or something. <clears throat> Maybe you'll run into her there. You
1: know I've seen a couple people from Chicago who are reading it and I mm. have a feeling it's because of that. Yeah. Because they I don't know if, no. how many people will make it to the, to the read-a-thon but I think a lot of people are going to be going to that exhibit because The Newberry Library does great exhibits. Well, I could see that
0: she and Martin C., is that how you say her husband's Mm -hmm. name, could be participants in the read-along because they both are, you know, performative readers and poets and things like that. So that's cool.
1: (laughs) What about any upcoming reads? Well, one of the next books I'll be reading is for Book Club, coming up at the end of the month. It's a nonfiction book. The title is an American Quilt Unfolding a Story of Family and Slavery by Rachel May. And this book just came out last May from Pegasus Books. And it's looking at slavery using this unfinished quilt as kind of the vehicle to look mm. at slavery, both from you know the fields in the south to the textile mills in the north and just how American slavery is it's not just a southern thing or, mm-hmm. um i think a lot of people are looking a little bit more at the north and its involvement and how its wealth was created on the backs of slaves too just not as directly
0: mm-hmm. what it's a fascinating title because the quilts historically quilts in slavery have a lot yeah. of crossover you well know?
1: and one of the things um she's a scholar of quilts oh, not okay. surprisingly. But this quilt in particular, the backings, they use different his, well now historical documents. But they use different, you know, pieces of paper with writing on it incorporated into the quilt. Oh, wow. So I, I just can't wait to read it. It's it's a book I hadn't heard about, but one of the book club members proposed it and I was like, Oh yeah, I'm yeah. into that for sure. Excellent. So wow. that's an American quilt by Rachel May.
0: I have as an upcoming read, Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy, edited by Nicole Seitz and Jonathan Haupt. And this was sent to us by our buddy, Allison Law of Literary Atlanta Podcast. Chris and I have both mentioned our absolute love for Pat Conroy. So this is, I think, a book just with so many different authors kind of commemorating him and their love of him and his writing. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to it. I picture it as one that's just going to be on my coffee table for a long time, and I'll just pick it up and read an essay yeah. here and there. You Absolutely,
1: know. I love the cover.
0: Yeah, it's got a beautiful picture of him on the cover, standing kind of in a little pond.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it looks like he's walking on water, which yes. is such a great joke and sense of you know just shows his sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: it really does. It's a great, great picture. And then I also got this wonderful coffee table book from our mutual friend, Ryan. I'm in a book club with Ryan called the Bicoastal Bibliophiles. (laughs) It's a little joke, our name, because we're located all over the country. We met through Booktopia. And what he did, we've been in a book club for, let's see what the first date is, since 2014. And what he did was he took... Beautiful pictures of the covers of each of the books we've read since then. And he made a book out of it for me. And it's called By Coastal Bibliophiles, Cover to Cover, Coast to Coast. That is fabulous. It has a beautiful cover. And then each of the pictures has the dates that book club met and um, read them and discussed them. And just so people know, if you want to do something like this for your book club, which I think would be a fantastic gift. The company he used is called Mix Book Photo Company. So I'll put all of that in the show notes. And Chris took a great picture of it, so I'll also yeah, post that. It's
1: a, such a thoughtful gift. It's yeah. So wonderful.
0: I just love it. I just love it. And in the other thoughtful gift category, we also got Wonderful prints from Anne Kingman of Books on the Nightstand fame, I think because, was it because of a tweet? Uh, An Instagram post
1: about Pat Conroy. Okay. Yeah, and 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 saw that, and she had these, she had two wonderful prints that have a pencil drawing of the cover of My My Reading Life, right? Yeah. And then um, the first paragraph of Why I Write. Yeah. And it's autographed by him. So they're they're signed and numbered prints. Yeah. Yeah, so really lots of Pat
0: Conroy love to us those last couple of weeks, which mm-hmm. is so nice. We really do love him, and we have we're not gonna say yet, yet, but we do have a um some reading Pat Conroy potential reading coming up in the future, yeah. So we'll talk year. about that, yeah. 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 Good so, guy, I tell you, yeah. if
1: you want to if you haven't read Pat Conroy yet, you're in for a treat, yeah. Any novel of his you pick up, they're all beautiful and yeah, so heartfelt.
0: Yeah, I always think if I could write. I'd want to write like Pat Mm -hmm. (laughs) Conroy. So coming up now, we have an interview with
1: Jess Montgomery. Author of The Widows, which is a new book just out from Minotaur Press. It's a mystery, historical fiction. It's based on Ohio's first woman sheriff in the 1920s. A fictionalized version of what could have happened. Right. Yes. It's kind of funny because I used to
0: work with Jess Montgomery Jess Montgomery is a pen name. Her real name is Sharon Shorts. And for those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a long time, I have mentioned over and over how terrible I am with names. And the beginning of the interview, you'll see. You'll see. You'll get a little taste of that. (laughs) Just how terrible I am with names. So with that, enjoy the interview with Jess Montgomery.
1: And happy Happy reading. reading. So we're here today with Jess Montgomery, author of The Widows which is the first Sheriff Lily Ross mystery published by Minotaur Press. Welcome, Sharon. Or- <laughs> oh,
0: right away I did it. <laughs> well, well, <yes>. Who? <laughs> We're so glad to have you here. The book pub date was just this past Tuesday, January 8th. So, As this podcast is live and ready for listeners, you can purchase the book. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, Thank
2: you. I'm excited.
0: So would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about this? This book is a work of fiction, but it's actually based on some
2: real historic people in Ohio, right? Right. Uh, Well, one historic real person in Ohio, um, Maude Collins, was the first female sheriff in Ohio. Uh, in 1925. uh, Sally, her husband was killed in the line of duty. And there's no mystery around his death. Uh, I believe she actually saw him get shot as he was attempting to serve a warrant for arrest to a a person. So how tragic is that? She actually uh, uh, testified at the killer's trial. I was inspired by her story. I'm a writer. I'm a mystery writer. So obviously, I got to thinking, hey, what if there was a mystery? What if she didn't know who killed her husband? What if she were just told, well, he was transporting a person who was going to be a prisoner from a nearby coal mining town and uh, the, he was killed by the prisoner and the prisoner got away. And what if she thought, wait a minute, no, he wouldn't let that happen. And in real life, Maud was packing up her five children wow. to go back, yeah, she lived, uh, they lived. all lived in the sheriff's house. The jailhouse was behind the, the county-owned sheriff's house in Vinton County. And she was packing up her five kids to go back to uh, live with her parents in West Virginia when one of the county commissioners came by and said, where are you going, Maude? We want to appoint you to be sheriff. So that's kind of what Lily's doing uh, in my novel. Lily has two children. Because I could not handle five children even on the page. <laughs> what's more, <laughs> I, have, I have two in real life, so I thought we'll give her two. I can handle two on the page. So she's packing, and she's a lot younger, um, and she already knows, you know, there's something really, there's something wrong about uh, the explanation I've been given. So in the fictional case, um, she thinks, oh yes, I will take this appointment to be sheriff because this will help me figure out. Uh, give uh, give me ways to talk with people to figure out what happened to my husband and at that point in the novel she's already investigating she's already asking questions but this gives her a little more uh, opportunity in the novel as well she meets and again this was purely fictional I don't know really I- anything about the the very personal lives of Maud and Fletcher Collins in real life but in my imagination Daniel the sheriff Uh, had a childhood friend named Marvina, and she herself is a widow. Um, Her husband was killed in a coal mining accident, and he was a unionizer, and she takes up the cause of uh, unionization as well. So she's kind of inspired uh, by Mother Jones in spirit. Yeah, I took inspiration from Mother Jones of, you know, somebody, a woman who's really strong, who isn't afraid to speak her mind, isn't afraid to organize men, isn't afraid to stand up in front of them and tell them, this is what you need to do for yourselves and your family. So that's who she was inspired by. But um, in the novel, Lily is not aware of Marvina. And Marvina knows that her friend Daniel's married, but hasn't ever met Lily. So it's kind of a shock for both of them to meet because of his death. And for obvious reasons, they start out a bit wary uh, of one another. This is not at all, by the way, uh, as you know from reading the book, not at all a love triangle. I didn't want to go there. It didn't fit what I was trying to do in in this novel. So there's none of that. But obviously a little wary of one another at first. They come from different backgrounds. And then as time goes on, they uh, realize they have a lot more in common than they think they become friends eventually and they each need the other one in order to figure out what happened
1: yeah I really like their friendship develops
2: yeah
1: also their relationship with their husbands Mm -hmm. seem to be very much partnerships Mm -hmm. as opposed to women who were you know simply carrying on their husband's legacy it seemed like well in the case of Lily she didn't know a lot of her husband's political leanings
2: mm-hmm.
1: with the union is mm-hmm. I shouldn't say too much, right? because I don't want to give any. <laughs> but what I did like is how you know the fact that these two women didn't know each other, they're living in the same area, mm-hmm. but had a lot to do with the the splinter that happened with World War one, which I thought was kind of fascinating with Daniel having gone off to fight mm-hmm. and leaving Marvina mm-hmm. and at- meeting Lily and and what happens with that so I thought that was a fascinating plot I guess what is that a plot point not necessarily a plot
2: twist right Plot point yeah part of the yeah part of the infrastructure of the novel um well I uh I, I wanted to show them as being partners with their husbands that's how my husband and I are but I also one reason I I had Daniel keep he's a little emotionally protective of Lily more than he needs to be and she accepts that more. She realizes she's accepted that more than she really needed to, as well. But it is, you know, it is the 1920s. She is um, about six years younger than he is, so it would make sense for there to be some distance. And there uh, was a bit of a class difference between them, too, wasn't there? A bit? Um, actually, no. They're pretty equal in, in um, stature in the town because. His father started the mine. His uh, uncle is a doctor. Mm -hmm. His half-brother now runs the mining company. He's the sheriff, but he is a half-brother and his mother is Native American. And so that puts him, you know, there was prejudice against people who were Native Americans or who were partially Native Americans. So that creates some tension in terms of wait, you're marrying who? <laughs> and eventually, you know, her family definitely accepts him. But there is that slight difference there. There's a big class difference between Lily and Marvina. So that's part of their divide. And part of their divide is that Appalachia is, even today with plenty of roads, difficult to navigate. And so in 1925, it was really hard to get from one hill to another. And my family of origins from eastern kentucky which is appalachia and they talked about even in you know the 40s and 50s that it was really hard to get from one holler to another oh, wow yeah yeah you definitely feel that sense
0: of also when lily goes to the holler to try to find marvina the difficulty and the way they communicate and there's the i love the part where it's i'll leave the was it the lunch pail, the lunch pail on right. the And that's your way of knowing how to find me. And it wasn't really to find her, it was to find someone who could find her. (laughs) I I love that. I was very intrigued by, because I am personally intrigued by the fact that I think people are largely mysteries to us, even the people who we might be getting in bed with every night. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That that people have, you know, they have a past where they knew other people before we knew them. And then they also just, can keep things close to the hip. And I think Daniel in particular, you know, being a sheriff, you're going to have a lot of secrets, right? Mm. And might know that I'm not going to share everything I know with my family. So did you have a particular intrigue of that in your own mind also, or was it something you were exploring when you were writing this novel?
2: Him as a mystery.
0: Yeah. And just, you know, how Lily slowly had to unravel. Right. And, And then, come to terms with the fact that this man who's now not around to be able to ask questions, figure out the mystery of who he was.
2: Yes. And he's a real presence. I think he's a presence. He's not just a, a, a body so that we can solve a mystery. He's right. a real presence on almost every, well, on every page. And one way I made that happen was I wrote 90 pages from his point of view. As if his life was flashing before his eyes, And then I decided that was cheesy. <laughs> uh, and also <laughs> broke up the flow of the novel way too much and was too I felt was too jarring to like, okay, we're in present moment. Now we're switching to Daniel. Who's already dead, but we're back in time, and now he's having a flashback. Wait, this was just way too confusing for me as a writer, what's more, for the poor reader. So I pulled all 90 pages, but they were not wasted pages because I really got to know him. And It was actually in, in writing a lot of those pages that I met Marvina. She started out, from his point of view, as, you know, I had this childhood friend named Marvina, you know. Something about that was intriguing to me, and... Then she became kind of a minor character, then she became a secondary character, and then I thought, oh darn, she's a point-of-view character, but I'm really glad that, that she evolved into that, because she knows him from childhood, and Lily didn't meet him until she was in her later teens, so Marvina knows a lot about him and his own struggles as a kid, because his father was pretty brutal, that, that Lily doesn't know.
0: Yes, our childhood friends are very formative in our lives. So
1: yeah.
0: That was a really interesting way for Lily to get to know her husband. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah. I read a review of The Widows on Criminal Element and the reviewer referred to the book as Appalachian noir, <laughs> I love that. which is the first time I I love I've, it. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, I really I really like that. Um, but it made me wonder as a mystery writer, what are some of your
2: influences? What writers influenced you? Early on, um, I read the classics. You know, I read Sue Grafton, I read classic Whodunits, Tony Hillerman. I wouldn't call either of those writers Appalachian Noir, but um, they're beautiful writers and no story structure inside and out. So I would count those as uh, earlier influences that, you know, writers need to read in the genre that they're going to write in, and they need to read widely. And beyond the genre, they're going to write in. But um, so those were two. More recently, I love Daniel Woodrell's uh, *Winter's Bone*. The mm-hmm. movie was beautiful. The novel's even better. <laughs> it's more Ozark noir, I'd say. And just admire the beauty of the language that he he uses to evoke this fairly simple story on the surface, but he digs way down into Reed Dolly's needs and motivations. And what I really love about that novel is um, if you read it through once and then you go back and reread the first paragraph, he captures the entire novel. You don't know it the first time you're reading through, but he captures that entire novel, its theme, its characters, the motivation, the setting, the, the imagery of the title in that first paragraph. That's wow right. <laughs> it's just it's just a masterpiece so i love his work i've become a really big fan of uh lori uh roy um yeah. her most recent book is uh let me die in his footsteps um and she writes standalones but they're like mid-century ish time frame um set in the u.s um and always have a, a beautiful deep theme and great voice so therefore are one the bent road yeah. oh yeah
1: I think it was just called yeah really really good writing oh my 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 list just got longer
0: (laughs) 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 um can that's kind of a good segue talking about standalones is this the intention of this book to be a standalone or is it intended to be a series
2: Uh, I I, I did it uh, as a standalone, and um, my wonderful agent managed to procure a two-book deal with uh, Minotaur, which I'm very grateful for. They're a wonderful publisher, and in chatting with my editor, I had some other ideas that hopefully I'll explore eventually, but she said, you know, there's an awful lot that I'm wondering. I want to know what happens next to Lily. I want to know what happens in the community, what happens with her, her friends and her family. And I have to admit, I was hesitant at first. So it took a while for me to realize she was right, that I've created a story and I've created characters, but I've also really created a world. And as I started, you know, looking back at what I'd written, I realized, oh, there's a kind of scary character named George Vogel, who's out of Cincinnati, who hovers over like the 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 scary uber villain you know in the novel there's a lot we can do with him um I have a lot of questions myself about where these characters are going and then I thought for a little bit about what if we went decade by decade Mm -hmm. um and I chatted with her about that and she very wisely this is one of the things about being a writer is you have to be open and coachable she said that's interesting but um that gives you 10 years of backstory to uh (laughs) (laughs) catch the reader up on and i thought oh yeah that's that's not going to work so the next book is called the hollows and it it's set in 1926 fall of 1926 so about a year and a half after the widows uh, concludes and lily has served as sheriff appointed sheriff but now she's running in her own right she has come to embrace she really likes this job and she wants to keep doing it which is actually true for uh, maude collins she ran herself in 1926. And here's the amazing, even more amazing to me than a female sheriff back in that era, she won by a landslide. Wow! <laughs> she won by a landslide and went on uh, to serve serve a full term. And she had a full career as a, in law enforcement and other capacities. Um, and the fun fact about her being the first Ohio female sheriff, by the way, Vinton County just was like, well, yeah, she's one of our own. This is what happened didn't think much about it until another county in Ohio went about nominating their female sheriff as the first female sheriff in Ohio into the Women's Hall of Fame in Ohio, and that sheriff was sheriff in 1976. What uh, oh. <laughs> year gap, and Vinton County said, oh, no, wait, oh, wait, maybe this is a little special. Um, oh. So I I leap ahead, I've sidetracked myself a little bit here, but I leap ahead in The Hollows to 1926 in the fall, uh, Lily's running for sheriff. But she's also realizing that she wouldn't have this opportunity if her husband hadn't died. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of guilt, survivor's guilt to, to deal with. And she, she's depressed, actually, but I don't say that because that's, not the terminology that would have been used in that day and place. Um, so she's she's dealing with that. And then an older woman, who nobody knows who this older woman is, found uh, murdered along a train track in a very remote part of, of the county. And Lily kind of faces a choice. It's going to be really hard to figure out who killed this woman. And it's going to really distract from... Her campaigning, because in my fictional world, she's not going to win by a landslide. This is going to be a tough campaign. But yet, if she just does what everyone's telling her, which is to say, oh, it's sad but these things happen, move on, does she really have the right to be sheriff? So, of course, she investigates. So, that's, that's, uh, that's what I'm working on now. Excellent. Yeah.
1: You. you know, you mentioned depression wouldn't have been used in that time and place. And I'm I was so struck while I was reading your novel and then at the, afterwards, thinking back on it, just how much detail is in it, but I never felt bogged down by the detail. And then how important the landscape is. Mm-hmm. You know, that place, like this story, wouldn't have been able to be set in other places. Exactly. I mean, possibly another mining community. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my question is, how much research do you do for those details? Like, you know, you have so many great historical details that are all absolutely relevant. I never ever felt like you were just dropping stuff in to kind of spice things up. It was all very relevant to the story. Uh, But like then other scenes, like when Lily is in the mine shaft Mm -hmm. and I won't say too much about it, but I felt like I was practically there. Like I could feel what
2: was going on. So how do you, get into that mindset when you're writing. it took me a little while. Um, my husband actually helped me with this he came while well, I was in an early stage very early on writing this novel he came home from a full day of work and he said, well oh, how was how was your day writing?" And I said, oh it was it was so difficult. He's like oh's been slow what you know what you're so excited about this book And I said, no I I spent all day trying to figure out what kind of egg beer, would Lily have used in 1925? <laughs> and the writer do the weirdest things. And there was this little silence and he said, couldn't she have used a fork? Um, <laughs> I thought, <laughs> yes, she could have. I need to pick and choose <laughs> the historical details. Does the reader care if I've you know, carefully researched the brand of an egg beater she might have owned. No, she could have just used a fork. By the way, found an egg beater in an antique shop that has a beautiful Bakelite handle and, and it says circa 1920, whatever. So I have it propped up in my office as a reminder of pick and choose these details carefully. <laughs> I love that. So it took a lot of revising because I didn't want people to feel bogged down. You know, if people want to read an article about Egg beaters of 1925. Good luck finding one. Please send me a copy. But they, that's that's a different kind of writing. And then in terms of the location in the landscape, my family of origin, like I mentioned, is from uh, eastern Kentucky. You know, a different part of Appalachia than eastern Ohio, but pretty similar. And even though I grew up in Ohio, every trip that we took out of Ohio was my parents would call it we're going home, and going home meant going back to grandma's house in Eastern Kentucky. And so I I grew to knew that specific area really, really well. And so I grew up with, you know, Appalachian dialect and foods and music, you know, the ballads I refer to, the gospel music I refer to. But then for this book, I took several research trips over to Southeastern Ohio. You know, it's not that far from where I am in Ohio. Um, and we just, you know, spend a few days in, uh, one of the state park lodges and drive around, talk to people. I talked with a lady whose father knew Maud Fletcher it, and it wasn't to try to copy their lives at all. I kind of purposely stayed away from knowing too much about their lives. Um but it was just to get a sense of how people felt and responded. And then the scene you're referring to, <laughs> I had a a fun event happen. So we're we're driving through the Appalachian foothills of Ohio. And we come upon, there used to be about 80 small mining towns in that area. And we come through one where there are still a few people living, but not a lot of mining. I don't think any mining going on in that particular town. And I noticed this old army, uh, what were those type of buildings, like a Quonset hut that had been turned into a mining museum so I wrote down the number because I had no cell signal. You know, we were remote enough. There's no cell signal. So I got back to the lodge where we were staying, and I dialed the number, but I had a off by one error. Oh. And I, I happened to dial the phone number for, I kid you not, the competing coal mining museum on the other side of that same town. <laughs> and when they realized the marketing department figuring yeah. out <laughs> uh, the man that answered, and it was you know his home phone. said, oh, you know, you don't want to go to that coal mining museum. You want to come to our coal mining (laughs) museum. I said, okay. So his coal mining museum was uh, the town's old train depot. And we stood outside for a little while. It was a cold day. And he was a little wary and I don't blame him. He was like, you you want to find out about what and you're not from here. And I think a little concerned of, are you going to write in a way that makes fun of us? And he realized, no, I, would, I was going to be respectful. And the turning point was when he said, it's really cold out here. If we go inside the, the museum, I'm going to have to light the uh, coal-burning stove for heat. Are you okay with that? I said, are you kidding? I am so okay with that. Of course I'm okay <laughs> with that. So we went in and just started chatting. And the senior, thinking about, he actually shared a similar story that his father had told him. And I was just struck by this and said, do you mind if I use a variation of that in the novel I'm writing? He said, no, that would be great. And it was really worthwhile and touching. I noticed this really small little helmet in the museum. And I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that was for the boys. Mm. Nice. Yeah, they weren't technically supposed to start working in the mines until they were 14 or so. But there were some who were younger. So this would have been a, a mining hat for a boy, maybe eleven or so. Wow.
0: Um, yeah. You know that they were <laughs> useful. I'm using air quotes because they were small and can fit in small
2: places,
0: exactly. which made it even more dangerous, of course. But exactly. yeah.
2: So there was a lot of that kind of research, um, and I will say it—it it was interesting. To so I tried I tried to start kind of <laughs> the egg beater example, notwithstanding. I try to start sort of broad, like, okay, what's happening in this particular part of the 20s in general in the world and then because you know that's going to influence what's happening in the U.S. and what's happening in the state of Ohio and narrow it down and narrow it down but it's really hard to find a lot of information about rural life in the 20s Mm -hmm. yeah about the cities people automatically think oh glitz jazz glamour cities but that's not what life was in the rural areas in the 20s um and then the coal mining disasters that I referred to, the battle for Blair Mountain, for example, that's really, really, completely, totally true and actually well documented. So I read everything I could about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and would
1: that that would have been definitely like probably national oh,
2: yes. news yes. and and everyone in the industry would have known about that for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, and they're not they don't they're in a part of Ohio that's very close to the West Virginia border, so they. which is where the battle for Blair Mountain took place. Um, And for your listeners, the the battle for Blair Mountain is not only (laughs) hard to say, um, it's also the second largest civil uprising in the United States, uh, surpassed only by the Civil War itself. And it was coal miners who were demanding and needing better safety practices um, and also fairer pay practices. And it ultimately Rolled all the way up to the the president of the United States. Uh, World War One um, leftover mun- munitions were used against these men who were striking. About a hundred or so were killed, um, hundreds more were injured and, and imprisoned. And interestingly enough, Mother Jones was very concerned. She didn't want these men to strike. She knew that she knew that they would get killed and hurt, and she was right. So that's also partly where I hold some inspiration for her in my novel marvina's wants them to form a union but also very much wants to avoid as she puts it a, another blair mountain mm-hmm. right
1: yeah. right and will we see marvina in the next book oh of course
2: oh, cool. good. oh good. good i liked her yeah
1: yes <laughs> <laughs> I like her
2: too. She's salty. Yeah. I like her.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> she was a great foil to Lily, I think, who was, yeah, you know, didn't. spent a lot of time time trying to be proper and, you know, had this proper um, job that she was trying to figure out. Yeah, I just I loved all the characters, and I really I, I realized that we didn't start out the beginning of this interview giving kind of a synopsis of the book, and I'm actually really glad we didn't because. It's a book that I didn't know anything about, and I, as I started it and opened the first page, I just was drawn into the characters and drawn into the story, and there is a mystery element that and and there's opportunity for lots of spoilers as we talk about it. So I'm glad right. that we didn't yeah. do that. <laughs> and I really encourage our listeners to get a copy and get lost in this book for a, a couple hundred pages because I I really enjoyed it. And I loved how you developed the partnership between these two very strong women. Um, I think women are great. Yeah. I have a yes. female <laughs> companion in crime on the book Cougars and we do good work together. And you know, it was really fun to read the book and, and see that relationship develop. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
2: Great. Thank you.
1: So will you be going on tour? Will you be doing some
2: signings
1: either in your area or
2: other places? Yeah. Um I'm I'm doing a signing. Well, people can check my website, actually. That's the best way to find out where I'm gonna be, which is justmontgomeryauthor.com so i'm going to uh, do a signing here in my hometown and going to texas for a couple of uh, events which should be fun and then um, going to mystery conferences malice uh, domestic is in i think may and that's in dc and boucher is the other big mystery conference and this year is at the end of october and is in again in texas Um, So I'm going to see a lot of Texas this year, (laughs) in Dallas, (laughs) Texas, and I'm sure there'll be, you know, some events in between and, and I'm always happy to visit book clubs because this is a mystery. It's a historical mystery with a lot of themes and a lot of background. And I think it's a good book club book. Actually, Minotaur has put together a reader's guide that will be on their website and that I'll link to from my website and that should be in the paperback version when it, when it comes out next year. So I'm happy to visit people via Skype.
1: Great. Excellent. Good. I mean, we'll put all those links in our show notes too. So people can find it that way as well. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. And I'm sure as events
0: get um, added, be sure to check back to Jess's site because I know authors keep them updated. Yeah. Um, be sure to check back <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <That's> regularly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jess, thank you so much for taking the time, especially during publication week to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate being on. Thank you. And best of luck with this book. And yeah. we will look forward to the hollows. Yes. Oh, thank you.
1: <laughs> All right. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to the book cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.